Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The Startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans, and thus America itself. I'm your host, Chris Stevenson. Join me for our 12-part podcast series, Religion and the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens, grappling with the complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday between now and the end of the year on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I think it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways, that interest in religion and the founding of the United States is broad, deep, intense, and continuous. And I think this interest is by those who are themselves religious and also uh, those who are not. Today we have with us two scholars who have expertise in this area, Mark David Hall and Daniel Dreisbach, to help us understand what we know about this from the historical record and what we don't. Thank you, Mark and Daniel, for being with us today, and thank you for doing the hard work of trying to understand the roles religion played in the founding of the American Republic. Delighted to join you. Wonderful to be here. Daniel Dreisbach is professor in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at American University in Washington, D.C., with primary research interests in American constitutional law and history, First Amendment law, church-state relations, and criminal procedure. He received his J.D. from the University of Virginia and his Ph.D. from Oxford University. Dr. Dreisbach is the author, co-author, or editor, or co-editor of a dozen books on religion in America, including his recently published Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. Mark David Hall is the Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics at George Fox University in Oregon, with primary research interests in American political theory and the relationship between religion and politics. He received his Ph.D. from the University of Virginia. Dr. Hall is the author, editor, or co-editor of a dozen books on religion in America, including most recently, Did America Have a Christian Founding? We encourage listeners to visit storyofamericanreligion.org and sign up for future podcast notifications under the Contact tab. Today, we are basing our discussion on information found in the Library of Congress's 1998 exhibit, Religion and the Founding of the American Republic, and Library of Congress historian James Hudson's book of the same name. We will cover just some of the content, and that will be first, America as a Religious Refuge in the 17th century, second, Religion in the Revolutionary War, third, Religion in State Governments, and fourth, Religion in the Federal Government. First, Daniel, uh, I'm quoting here from James Hudson's Library of Congress book, quote, 17th century Europe was full of religious fervor and hatred because it had not yet come to terms with the Protestant Reformation, close quote, and religious minorities there began to see America uh, as a religious refuge. Can you describe for us, Daniel, some of these groups as they congregated here, who they were, what they experienced here, what they did, and why it is important 
for us to understand this? Yes. Well, I think uh, the Reformation is a good starting point here because with the Reformation, we see a splintering of Christendom. Uh, We find uh, a multitude of religious sects emerging in the wake of the Protestant uh, split with with the church in Rome. And, And this is going to be accompanied by a century or more of wars of religion that are going to ravage the European continent. These are horrific, uh, violent uh, episodes in in European history. And many of the religiously dispossessed of Europe, those who are are, uh, uh, afflicted by the war itself, or those who are Uh, touched by persecution in Europe, are going to see possibilities of a world of toleration, a a world where they can practice their religion freely on this side of the Atlantic, in in the new world, if you will. Uh, Chris, it's part of my my own family's story. Uh, The Dreisbachs came to uh, America in the 1740s, uh, eight generations ago, and uh, we know uh, that they were Protestants. Uh, they came from a part of Germany that was governed by a Catholic prince. And one of the very first things they did when they arrived in the New World is they built a church. And that church still stands today. It still meets on a, on a weekly basis. And you can follow the family's movement west by, by the churches they built and left behind. Uh, so it, it's it's a it's a part of my family's uh, story, uh, but we're going to find literally scores and scores of different religious sects coming to the New World, uh, settling in on this side of, of the Atlantic, and and they're going to have to figure out how they're going to live uh, in relative harmony side by side, how they're going to flourish on American soil without engaging in the kind of of violent conflict that they had escaped uh, in the old world. But I think what we need to also ask is this. We know that there are these many, many religious sects. And by the way, uh, the vast majority of them, we would put under the common category of Protestants. Now, great, great diversity of Protestant sects, but, but most of them would have identified with the Protestant uh, tradition. Uh, there were uh, uh, a number of Roman Catholics, primarily in a handful of locations like Maryland, which was uh, a colony that was created in part as a haven uh, for uh, Roman Catholics. There are a handful of Jews, again, largely in a few uh, urban areas, uh, but by and large, we're talking about Protestants. But I think the interesting question is, what are, the, what are the consequences of this extraordinary religious diversity that we find in the new world? Uh, and one consequence is it's a potential for conflict as well as cooperation among these different religious sects competing for adherents and followers and public recognition. And yes, there are some ugly episodes in American history. We think of the execution of Quakers in Boston Common in the 1660s, and there are other stories. But when I look at the sweep of, of American history, I think it's, it's most remarkable for the relative harmony 
with which these various religious sects have lived together without descending into that kind of conflict that we find in Europe. But a second consequence is it, it, it forces Americans to begin to think very early on in the colonial experience about workable policies of initially religious toleration, but ultimately religious liberty. They understand that if they're going to live together, they have to figure out policies that are going to work where they're not going to descend into warfare. But let me mention one last consequence, and that is this. By the time we get to independence, there are so many religious sects and denominations in the new world that the idea of creating a national church like the Church of England back in England is, is simply untenable. There's no religious denomination in America that is sufficiently powerful or, or expansive that it can impose its will on all the others. And so these, I think, are the important consequences of this extraordinary religious diversity. Excellent. Thank you for painting that picture. Uh, Mark, anything to add to that before we move on? Only that we're celebrating this month the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower arriving in the New World and the Mayflower Compact, a very important anniversary. These pilgrims fleeing religious persecution for religious freedom, as Daniel was, was saying. Okay. Thank you both. Uh, that really sets the stage here for us to move on to um, the American Revolution. So, Mark, let's talk about that a little bit. In the book, uh, James Hudson uh, says that uh, the Great Awakening, evangelicalism, was not the engine of the American Revolution, but that, quote, although religion did not directly cause the revolt against Britain, it offered powerful support to the American cause at every step of the way, close quote. Can you tell us some of the stories of religions and religious actors supporting the American Revolution? What did, what did James Hudson mean here? Yeah, so to begin with, I think he's re responding to an earlier argument by a scholar named Alan Heimert, who argued that out of the Second Great Awakening, you have this evangelical movement that sort of got used to challenging authority, and this carried on into the revolution. But Heimert also paints other ministers that didn't go in along with the evangelicalism as being conservatives. And I think the problem with that argument is that pretty much almost all American ministers, with the exception of Anglican ministers, were united in support of the war for American independence. There were exceptions here, there, uh, but overwhelmingly supportive, as, as opposed to the revolution in France, where the priests were aligned with the monarchy. Um, to my way of thinking, probably the number one driving engine behind the war for American independence is reformed political theology, or Calvinist political theology. So the church for about 1300 years pretty uniformly said, you have to submit to governing authorities. If they tell you to disobey God, you can refuse to obey, but you don't get to overthrow them. One or two Catholic thinkers here or there toyed around with the doctrine of tyrannicide, but it really is within Calvinism that this doctrine got, got exploded. Um, John Calvin, people often make the mistake of just looking at Calvin. Calvin and his institutes, I think it's crystal clear, saying that inferior magistrates may properly resist a superior magistrate if he becomes tyrannical. But even as Calvin was writing that, you have John Knox up, 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 up in Scotland saying, no, the people themselves may rise up and overthrow a tyrant. And this doctrine is developed uh, by reform thinker after reform thinker, the author of Wintike Contra Tyrannos, Pone, Buchanan, 
and others. Now, this is critically important in the American context because 50 to 75 percent of Americans in the late 18th century are reasonably called Calvinists. Now, as Daniel suggested, there's different stripes of Calvinists. There's, there's Dutch Reform, German Reform, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, but they've all done, drank deeply of this well. And so by the time you get the, um, the Sugar Act and the Stamp Act crisis of 1764, 1765, Americans are prepared to fight for their rights as they see them, constitutional and natural rights. And yet they didn't go immediately to war. Think about it, 1765, it's not till 1775 that shots are, are, are exchanged. And so there's a long attempt to vindicate their rights without going to war. But ultimately, when they felt that the British Parliament specifically had just pushed too far uh, by inappropriate taxes, the threat of sending an Anglican bishop to British North America, tolerating the Papist up in Quebec, and so forth, um, they, they, they felt thoroughly justified in picking up arms and resisting British tyranny. And the ministers went along and were an important source of authority for this. Almost every Calvinist minister, Presbyterian, Congregationalist, and others, was supportive of the War for American Independence. Anglican ministers, Anglicanism is, of course, the Church of England, were split about 50-50, and a number of the loyalist priests actually left, um, but reform ministers overwhelmingly supportive of the Patriot cause. Um, what can you, so uh, what you're saying is they had uh, a religious understanding or a religious motivation, I guess, understanding um, or approval of resistance to tyranny from their Calvinist doctrine. That's that's the main point you're trying to bring up here. Absolutely. Both the okay. right and perhaps even the duty to resist tyranny. Okay. And and there is something in Romans 13, which on its face seems to prohibit rebellion. Um, you're saying that that was overcome by this sort of new understanding uh, of, of resistance. Is that right? Yeah. I'll take up on that. Uh, you know, Romans 13, let, so we're dealing with an American population uh, that is biblically literate. Uh, they're they're, they're uh, a church-going people. Uh, they take the Bible seriously, and they encounter in Romans chapter 13, the first seven verses or so of that chapter, uh, it poses a bit of a problem because it speaks of the duty to be in submission to those in authority over you. Well, this is a bit of a, of a challenge if you're a, a, a pious Bible-reading uh, citizen, and, and yet you're contemplating resistance against Crown and Parliament. Well, the Americans uh, interpret those that Mark was just speaking about, those Presbyterian ministers and Congregationalist ministers, uh, they begin to offer an interpretation of Romans 13 that goes something like this. Yes, indeed, we are called by God to be in submission to those that he has rightfully placed in authority over us. And he calls rulers, his vice regents, to rule over us to serve the public good. But what happens if a ruler ceases to serve the public good? He ceases to fulfill that very function for which God has called that ruler to serve and thereby relinquishes the citizen's duty to obey that ruler. Okay. And so you can resist the corrupt ruler. You can resist the tyrannical 
ruler. And so this is a message of resistance interpreting Romans uh, that that is that is being heard by a, by Americans. It's being preached from from very prominent uh, uh, pulpits in America by leading clergymen in America. But okay. let me just add one point here, and that is. This is not an interpretation that is new to America. This is not a, an American innovation of biblical interpretation. This is drawing on that post-Reformation conflict that we see in Europe uh, between the Protestant uh, citizens and and the and 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 Catholic rulers um, in 1572. 1572, for example, there was a horrific uh, massacre. Of, of French Huguenots in France. And the Huguenots are looking, are we, are, do we simply have to passively uh, take this, this, this brutal massacre of our own people? And you begin to hear the French Huguenots in the end of the 16th century offering this very same interpretation of Romans 13 and other passages. You hear this same argument being made, for example, by Puritans in their conflict with Charles I in the English Civil Wars leading up to the execution of, of Charles I. So I don't want to suggest that Americans are offering a novel or new interpretation, but they're drawing from that deep well, as Mark has said, uh, especially coming out of that Calvinist theological tradition. Mark or Daniel, can you share with us one or two biblical contexts that were used by the clergy during the Revolutionary War when preaching of political events during that era? Yes. Uh, so again, we're dealing with a, a, a biblically literate people, and the Bible is going to frame much of the thinking, uh, many of the arguments that are going to be made uh, by by Americans at this time, and they're going to draw on analogies. Uh, they're going to draw on the analogy of of the children of Israel's deliverance from bondage in Egypt, for example. Uh, you may know the story of how uh, a committee created by the Second Continental Congress, a committee of Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams, they were charged with designing a great seal for uh, the United States. And, and, and what did they come up with? They came up with a design of Moses extending his hand over the Red Sea so that it, the waters would be parted in, in God's providential plan and the children of Israel would escape the tyranny of a pharaoh. Um, they were drawn to many of the stories of resistance. Uh, Daniel resisting the king's decree uh, that he must not pray uh, to, to his God. Um, and there are many uh, similar stories uh, throughout scripture. They're also drawn to the analogies of, uh, uh, consider uh, 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 General Washington as a Moses, a liberator, or a Joshua, uh, leading uh, the forces into the pr uh, promised land. So okay. the literature of the American founding is replete with these kinds of analogies and comparisons uh, to biblical stories that would have been very familiar to the American people at this time. Okay. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, Mark, I wanted to ask you, uh, what was the effect of the American Revolution on religion in the new nation? Sure, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, the story of religion in America in this era used to be told 
that you had the, the pilgrims, the Puritans, and then their children, and they sort of lost their faith. And then in the 1740s, you have this great awakening, right? These revivals that produce evangelicals. And then there's maybe a lull in the late 18th century. And then we have a second great awakening in the early 19th century. Um, I think historians have pretty well recognized that it's not the case. And in fact, there were a whole series of revivals from the 1740s well into the 19th century. And this, this creates a lot of churn, as you might imagine. Some of the older denominations, the more staid, the more liturgical, lose members, the evangelical denominations uh, begin to pick up steam in America, first the Baptists and later the Methodists. I'm not sure any of that's actually caused by the war. Now, if you turn to specific denominations, you definitely see some impacts of the revolution. Just to mention, too, the Quakers, who historically are, are pacifists, they split with respect to the war. You had a, a party known as the Fighting Quakers that thought they should abandon their pacifism and join the Patriot side. Many Quakers, on the other hand, thought they couldn't fight because of their biblical convictions, their theological convictions. And so they were, they, they were associated with loyalists, even though they might not have been loyalists per se, they just thought they couldn't pick up arms. And, and they subsequently became very unpopular in American politics, as you might imagine. The other denomination that was profoundly affected, as you might imagine, was the Anglican Church. The Church of England. Think about that. The king is the head of the Church of England. The patriots right. are picking up arms against England. Um, now, Anglicans are only about 15% of the American population at this time, um, but it is the established church of, of the southern states, of uh, most of them anyway, and a few counties in, in New York. And so I think one of the immediate aftermaths of the, um, even actually during the war, was to either disestablish or move towards disestablishing Anglican church churches in the United States, whereas up in New England, the congregational churches remained the established church well into the 19th century. Now, um, one of the things that you uh, mentioned, the effect of the Anglican church, uh, James Hudson writes this, uh, which surprised me. I had not really read about this. He said, quote, the departure of half the country's Anglican preachers by war's end ensured that there would be no entrenched, enduring, religiously-based opposition to the new American Republic, close quote. How significant is this? I think it's significant in pockets of the colonies. Uh, it's significant in places like Virginia, for example, where the Church of England is a very important institution, and, and, and many parishes uh, lost their 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 minister, and they go for extended periods of time uh, without any kind of ministerial uh, uh, supervision, if you will. Now that vacuum is going to be filled, and it's going to be filled by revolutionary-minded, probably younger uh, ministers. Um, so it, it has an impact, uh, but uh, it, I, I don't know that it's a long-lived. Uh, okay. uh, uh, phenomenon. In France, there was this issue with the French Re Revolution, which we didn't then have, correct? Is that what Hudson's trying to point out? I'm not sure what he's intending to point out, but it's exactly the case. The priests were marching arm in arm with the aristocracy in France, and so the revolution was against both the church and the state, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, so it's right. a, it really was a revolution, whereas people argue, of course, that the American Revolution is maybe better called the War for American Independence because in certain respects, it was a conservative movement 
against perceived British tyranny, not a desire okay. to upend things and overturn the, the, the okay. universe. Okay, thank you for that. We are talking with Daniel Dreisbach, professor in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at American University in Washington, D.C., and Mark Call, the Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics at George Fox University in Oregon. They are the co-editors of Faith and the Founders of the American Republic and the Sacred Rights of Conscience. To all who are listening, remember to visit storyofamericanreligion.org and sign up for future podcast notifications under the Contact tab. Mark, let's move to the time between the end of the Revolutionary War and the establishment of the federal constitution in 1787. As these new states, these new independent states, were setting up their constitutions and governments in the wake of winning independence, the relationship between religion and government was hotly debated. Can you tell us about the philosophies regarding the role of religion in society that were generally accepted and were being fought against, I guess you could say? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Thank you. There certainly are debates going on, most notably over whether or not states should have an established church. Um, one of the things that I think everyone agreed with, I mean, almost literally everyone, and so this wasn't a debate, is the important relationship between religion, morality, and republicanism. Jim Hudson in another book calls this a founder syllogism, like a logical syllogism. Everyone believed that in order for a Republican form of government to work, you had to have a religious people. And in this context, it indisputably means Christian people. Um, I'm sorry, moral people. And in order for the people to be moral, you have to have a Christian people, right? So Christianity is necessary for morality, which is necessary for Republican government. I actually brought a few quotes and I'll read them to make sure I don't boggle them. So John Adams, for instance, says that religion and morality alone can establish the principles upon which freedom can be secured. He later said with respect to the US Constitution specifically, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is inadequate to any other. And Charles Carroll, the Roman Catholic, writes that without morals, a republic cannot subsist in any length of time. They therefore who are decrying the Christian religion whose morality is so sublime and pure are undermining the solid foundations of morals. They bear security for the duration of a free government. The very last quote I'll mention is probably the most famous one by George Washington in the farewell address. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indisputable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who would labor to subvert those great pillars of human happiness, those finest props and duty of duty and citizens. So the um, just to a person, America's founders were, were absolutely convinced that if you wanted a Republican form of government, you had to have a moral people, uh, moral people who respect each other, who tell the truth, and then particularly that, that um, they have the ability to restrain themselves. So you need less external force to maintain order because the people are self-governing. So religion necessary for morality, necessary for republicanism, everyone agreed with that. Um, there are debates on the margins as to whether or not one should have an established church. Um, does an established church help Christianity? If so, it's a good thing we should have it. But if it hurts Christianity, we ought not to have it. And so let's disestablish the church. Okay. Uh, Daniel, anything to add to that? Yeah, this is, I think, uh, a big topic and, and really an important uh, uh subject to sort of get inside the mind of, of late 18th century Americans 
and their thinking on the on the relationship between uh, religion and and the civil state, religion and, and public life. Uh, but I, I think you just you can't overstate uh, the point that Mark just made is that there was this consensus in America that that religion and morality are absolutely essential to this grand political experiment in self-government and liberty under law. And, uh, and, and, and you, you can't, I mean, think about the, the power of Washington's statement that, that Mark just read from the farewell address. He called religion and morality indispensable supports for Republican self-government. And, and if, as if to underscore that very point, in the very next sentence, he says, in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these firmest props of human happiness, right? If you're laboring to undermine this, this role of religion or morality, you can't call yourself a patriot. Um, and, and so this is the kind of conversation that Americans are having at the end of the 18th century. I want to... Thank you for that. I want to bring up something that James Hudson brings up that I found super fascinating. I don't think is very well known. So he talks about this idea based in Isaiah. So now I'm talking about this idea of a, a, a state church. Mark, you uh, an established uh, state church. You talked about that a little bit. That there, for hundreds of years, maybe more, Isaiah had been used. The, the quotes in Isaiah about King shall be their nursing fathers, that phrase as a support for a state church. So can you talk a little bit about this idea uh, that and, and how entrenched those were in the founding generation's minds? And then let's talk about how that is how, how they battle against that as they try to figure out state churches in these new in these new, state in these new independent states where um, there were a lot of people who weren't Anglican that were mad if Anglicanism was going to remain. So can we talk a little bit about that, uh, Daniel or Mark? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll be happy to take that up. He, this is a reference to a metaphor uh, found in Isaiah, I believe it's 49, chapter 49, verse 23, uh, that, that, that the king will be the nursing father. Uh, of the church, so to speak, or of the faith. Uh, this is a very ancient, of course, it, it, it emerges out of a biblical metaphor, but it's a very ancient one in the European context, and it's brought across, and you find this metaphor of the civil magistrate being a nursing father from, from the earliest days of the colonial experience in the New World, and it continues but I think over time, as we get to the period of the American independence, that, that metaphor is going to, to, to be sort of republicanized, if I can, if I can invent a word here. And so it, it ceases to be simply a reference to the king, as in the literal king is the nursing father, to the civil magistrate should be, a, should be a, uh, an exemplar of of virtue and morality that is is going to influence the people at large. So the metaphor, I think, changes somewhat over time as we move into a post-colonial uh, era. But it, it, it's it's a very powerful metaphor uh, that certainly has its roots 
in this idea of an established church. But one of the things that we find happening at the from the mid-18th century through the revolutionary period and into the early republic is that a debate emerges in America. As Marx said earlier, uh, there's almost no one who dissents from the idea that religion has a very valuable, very essential role to play in public life. But the debate that emerges is this, what is the best way? What is the most effective way of of nurturing a vibrant religious culture that will beneficently influence public life. Uh, there were those, and I call these, the, this is the old school, that was hearkening back to the model from Europe, going all the way back to, to Constantine, the idea of an established church, uh, one state, one church that enjoys legal preference and, and support of the state. And there are those, certainly in America, in, in the revolutionary era that that can only see it through that lens. That's the only model that they can imagine. However, not at the national level so much, but at their at their state level. But what's really interesting is that by the mid-18th century, and it continues, it picks up steam as we move into the founding era, is that there's a new idea, a more effective way to nurture an effective religion that's going to influence society and public life is to free it from state support, is to have a competition, if you will, in the marketplace of ideas where every minister, where every church and denomination has to demonstrate the efficacy of their ideas, has to demonstrate the power of their faith, and, and through demonstration of the effectiveness in efficacy of their faith, they will attract adherents and followers. And and this is the new school. This is the new idea. And and we're going to begin to see in the founding era, states begin to adopt this policy. And it's, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen over the course of a generation or two, uh, where, where states gradually uh, began to remove the requirement that citizens support a, a state church through their taxes, and eventually they begin to, to more uh, officially disestablish uh, their churches. But very interesting, both Jefferson and Madison, who had seen this experiment in disestablishment in their native Virginia, late in life, 50 years after the fact, if you will, uh, I'm thinking here of Madison, at the very end of his life in the in the 1830s, he says, let's look back on 50 years of, of disestablishment and what do we find? We find that, that religion is more vibrant today than it was 50 years ago. And what explains that? It explains that there's no longer a monopoly. The state doesn't have a monopoly over one church. Where you have one church, one state, there's a complacency. There's a, an inclination to rely on, on the um, coercive powers of the state uh, for conformity to religious beliefs. That's not what attracts people to the faith. What attracts them is this, is this open competition in a marketplace of ideas. And this is the view that I think 
ultimately prevails in the American experience. And, and it's going to, it's it, again, not overnight, it's going to take well into the 19th century before the last states formally disestablish. But this is what the, this is the idea that I think is enshrined in the First Amendment and is enshrined in the American consciousness as the most prudential relationship between church and state. Excellent. Thank you. Mark, you wanted to add to that? If I could could just add to that briefly, I agree with everything Daniel said. I I would want to um, suggest, so oftentimes the story of religious liberty and uh, opposition to establishments in America is, um, is, is told something like this. All we have is religious oppression in America until the Enlightenment hits in the late 18th century, and Enlightenment thinkers like Jefferson and Madison you know, shook everything up and it got rid of establishments and brought us religious liberty. It's just false. This is just a false narrative. As Daniel suggested, you have plenty of Christian political thinkers and ministers, people like William Penn, Roger Williams, Isaac Backus, John Leland, and on and on you can go who are making explicitly biblical arguments for religious liberty, especially explicitly theological arguments for religious liberty and practical arguments for religious liberty long before Locke ever writes a letter on toleration. And these are the ideas that got the most purchase in America. And even with respect to opposing establishments, I think the key to opposing these establishments were were far more religious traditionalists or evangelicals who believe that they hurt Christianity than enlightenment, quote unquote, deists like a Jefferson or Madison who played important roles but the roles are often oversold. Okay, thank you. Great conversation on this period of of American history. Very helpful, thank you both. Let's now take ourselves to the Constitutional Convention in that hot Philadelphia summer of 1787. And what we see, uh, according to James Hudson, uh, is that the convention and the Constitution itself were devoid of much religion. And that's very much in contrast to the religious talk and behavior of the Confederation Congress. So much so that James Hudson writes, quote, to explain the Philadelphia Convention, one would almost think that some sudden mass apostasy had occurred in America's political elite, close quote. Mark, can you start off and help us understand the Constitutional Convention and the Constitutional Constitution itself with regards to religion. Sure. Well, what um, Jim is referring to there is the fact that the Constitution at one level appears to be godless, right? The deity is not mentioned until we get to our dateline in the year of our Lord, 1787. And so you have professors like Isaac Kramnik and Arnold Lawrence Moore who've written a book, The Godless Constitution, or they, 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 they share a variation of this myth I just mentioned. The founders were Enlightenment deists, they created a godless constitution, and they wanted to strictly separate church and state. Um, it's simply not true, and, and Hudson understands it's not true, as he shows in this book and elsewhere. The, the founders in Philadelphia were crafting a limited document for a particular purpose, and that was to create a national government that would have very limited powers. In crafting this document, they drew from their Christian convictions. Let me just give you one obvious example, and then we could talk about others if you want or move on if you want. The founders to a person were convinced that humans were sinful. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and even Christians continue to struggle with the old man within. And so therefore, they very carefully designed a national constitutional order characterized by separation of powers, checks and balances, and federalism, 
Enlightenment thought at this time was going exactly the opposite direction. We need a very strong central government run by the experts, right? As you might think of the Enlightenment folks would like that sort of thing. The founders would have nothing to do with that. They would say that is a, rep- a, a recipe for tyranny. Power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the founders, if we just look at the federal constitution, it doesn't mention religion and morality, uh, but the, the ideas underlying it are profoundly Christian. Many, many, many founders continued to think that, that the state should play important roles in encouraging religion, in punishing vice, in encouraging morality, but this would be done at the state or local level. And even after the last states, after Massachusetts disestablished its church in 1832, states remained in the business of punishing vice, encouraging morality, and even encouraging Christianity well into the 20th century. Uh- Thank you. One thing that Hudson brings out, there may have been reasons. He found reasons why God was not so so invoked so frequently compared to previous Congress. And one of the reasons he found was in 1787, there was no impending doom. So the people of the earlier Congress were, they were, claiming independence or proclaiming independence, they were in danger, like their lives were in danger. So, so when they met in 1787, that wasn't so much the case. So, so there was, Hudson felt like one of the reasons it didn't seem so religious uh, was because of that. Uh, Daniel, can you comment on that or other things that you've seen in, in, in that 1787 constitution and convention regarding religion? Yeah. Uh, what I find more persuasive than that, uh, not to dismiss that, that point, but what I find more persuasive is uh, this was a convention that was creating a document that would work in a system of federalism, where you had operating together, hand in glove, a national government, but more importantly, state and local governments. And one of the great fears of the delegates at the convention, but more importantly, one of the great fears of the American public at large is that you would create a national government that would swallow everything up, that would swallow up state and local governments. And so you're creating this national government, but it kept in place. It did not dislodge those state constitutions that are replete with acknowledgments of the deity and obligations to the deity and the reliance of the uh, of the polity on on God's favor and and one of the fears is is that if the national government if the con- national convention got involved in writing that kind of thing it would be seen as supplanting or displacing what was already expressed in those terms at a more local level and, and let me just make this more broad, this point in a more broad way, and that is this. I think everything pretty much that the Constitution has to say about religion uh, is almost as much about federalism as it is about religion. It's about ensuring that policies and arrangements pertaining to church-state relationships would remain at the state and local level. For example, 
in Article 6, Clause 3 of the Constitution, there is a, a ban on religious tests for federal office holders. Well, some have interpreted this as, 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 as sort of the, as the opening wedge to a profoundly secular state. Well, I don't quite view it that way. Rather, I view it this way. The ban on religious tests was a restriction on the ability of the federal government to write religious tests that would have the effect of displacing the religious tests oaths that were already in place at the state and local level. And those delegates were jealously guarding the religious tests that were already in, in place. Mm. Now, that all seems a little bit foreign to the way we look at the Constitution from the 21st century. But again, I think it underscores that when you start thinking about religion and constitutions at this time, you've got to keep in mind, we've got two constitutions operating here, a national constitution and that state constitution. And they each had their respective jurisdictions, their respective roles, especially when it comes to this subject of, of religion. And, and the key point here is to leave this subject of religion either to the individual or to the religious society or to the extent that the state has some role to play at the state and local levels, not okay. the federal government. That's very, very enlightening. Thank you for that. That's That's something to think about. All right, so let's, because of time, we can't uh, talk more about this, but let's move on, which we could for a long time. Let's move on to the Bill of Rights, created in 1789, which includes the religion clauses, and I'll quote them here. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, close quote. We learned that James Madison had suggested slightly different wording, that Congress should be prohibited from establishing a national religion. Can you, either of you, tell us what that signifies and whether the words and deeds of the first federal Congress and America's first presidents shine a light on the founding generation's views of church-state relations? Mark, why don't we start with you and then move to Daniel? Sure. I, th I think Daniel already answered that question. The, um, everyone understood that the First Amendment was only a restriction on the national government. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Now, we can argue about what exactly that entails. In the mid-20th century, the Supreme Court said it requires a wall of separation between church and state. Um, it made a historical argument to get to that conclusion. It's a horrible historical argument. In no way, shape, or form, did any founder act as if there was a wall of separation between church and state? And I think a few thought that there was. Let me give you just one example. You mentioned the first federal Congress. I think it was one day, literally one day after the House arrived at the final language of the First Amendment, Ilias Boudinot stood up in Congress. I'm going to paraphrase him. He's the later president of the American Bible Society. He says, hey, guys, things are going really well. Why don't we ask President Washington to issue a Thanksgiving Day proclamation? Old Adonias Burke and Thomas Tucker from what, North Carolina, South Carolina, um, they stood up and said, oh, we can't do that. That's a European practice. Roger Sherman, the old Puritan from Connecticut, said, no, 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 that's okay, guys. It's not a European practice. It's a biblical practice, and therefore, it's one we should imitate. The House agreed with Boudinot and Sherman. The Senate agreed with the House. And George Washington, who did not have to issue the Thanksgiving Day Proclamation, did so anyway. It's a wonderfully theologically robust Thanksgiving Day Proclamation, 1789. Your listeners can Google it. 
and find it for themselves. And the first federal Congress and subsequent Congress did this sort of thing all the time. Um, they, they appropriated money to hire priests for Native Americans. They hired chaplains. One of the first things they did was hire two chaplains. There's just simply no evidence that they wanted to separate church and state. What they wanted is to prevent there from being a national church. And states would be free then to have established churches or not as they saw fit. Okay. Yeah, I think it also, you know, the focus here in what Mark just said is the prohibition is on something of an institutional establishment of religion, not the influence of religion in public life, because as we've already been discussing, this was a generation that thought religion played an indispensable role in in, in their political regime, in their political experiment. So what they were concerned about was the institutional establishment of a church of the United States, so to speak, that would parallel the established church that you would have found in every European country at at this time uh, in history. And I think Madison's words that you, you brought our attention to, a national religion, I think, again, kind of underscores that. But, but let me just remind ourselves that also here by implication is that states are left uh, free to articulate and define the church-state arrangements that they thought appropriate. And, and the states take a variety of positions. I think the trend is towards disestablishment, but well into the 19th century, there are going to be states that retain established churches. Uh, some are going to begin to disestablish and and, and there were a few that had no establishment to begin with. So there's a variety of responses, but I, I think what's being deliberated in the first Congress as they debate this language that becomes ultimately the First Amendment is, is uh, what's the national government's role? And that is, they have no role. They have no jurisdiction over religion. That's why Madison initially thought, we don't need an amendment on this subject because We have a constitution of strictly delegated, enumerated powers. We've given no power to the national government over religion, so we don't need an amendment on this topic. Now, the political realities forces him to sort of come around and eventually adopt and support an amendment. But notice, it's it's simply saying the national government has no jurisdiction in these matters. It's It's a subject left to the individual to religious societies, and to state and local authorities. So I think something that our listeners struggle with is living in 2020 and sitting here on the religious American religious landscape, I should say American religious freedom landscape, uh, and trying to understand the founders you you mentioned that it's hard, one of you a few minutes ago, that it's hard for us to understand. It is hard for us to understand. Right. Can, can you address sort of what I'm saying here, trying to understand the founders today with regard to religion, disestablishment and free exercise? Yeah, I think to some extent you're, you're absolutely right. And, and it, you know, this dissonance that you're 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 pointing us to probably parallels the growth in in the federal government, right? We live in the 21st century with the national government of a size and and with an extension of power that would have been unimaginable, I think, uh, 200 some years ago. And I think much of our 
our, our sort of failure to, to, to sort of bridge that gap from the founders' fears and perspectives to where we are in the 21st century probably has a lot to do with this profound transformation uh, in, in, in the, the nature of this centralized government. Um, okay. And so I think if we can put ourselves back, and, and I might inc- uh, encourage readers, for example, uh, read a couple Federalist Papers and a couple anti-Federalist Papers written in the midst of the ratification debates over the Constitution. And you're going to see uh, exactly the fears of so many Americans about how do we create a centralized government, but yet control and contain its powers. Well, that debate has passed and, and the Federalists won, so to speak, or the, cent- the powers of the centralized government have won, so to speak. It's a product of, of the outcome of, of, of the Civil War, of the New Deal, of the, fort- uh, of the 14th Amendment, and a, and a whole variety of uh, okay. developments in our history and in our Constitution in the two centuries since the founding era. That's that's very insightful, Mark. Anything to add yeah, to? If I could build off that, um, let me begin with the free exercise clause. I, I think, to their credit, the founders recognized that religious liberty must be robustly protected, and they understood that majorities are pretty good at protecting themselves. And so, this always almost always means protecting religious minorities. And a, a problem that arises um, in the administrative state, but it arose back then, is what do you do when you have a general, neutrally applicable law? everyone shall serve in the army or everyone shall swear an oath. And then you have people who say, I can't do that. I'm a Quaker. I'm a pacifist. I cannot um, serve in the military. I'm a Quaker. I believe that I should only affirm rather than swear oaths. Um, one, one option is to throw them in jail. Another option would be to get rid of those laws. What America's founders understood is there is a nice, sensible way to accommodate these religious minorities. So the constitution itself has a religious accommodation, right? If you go to article two, the only oath that spelled out, that spelled out the presidential oath of office permits a person to swear or affirm that he will uphold the constitution of the United States. This is a religious accommodation meant to protect a very small religious minority, not just Quakers, Brethren, Mennonites, and a few others. James Madison in the first federal Congress, when he proposed what became the Second Amendment, had a clause in that Second Amendment that would have protected religious pacifists. This didn't make it through the committee process, um, but he got it inserted later in the militia bill. And so I would say this is a lesson we can absolutely take from the founders. Religious liberty must be robustly protected when we have to have a neutral, generally applicable law that keeps people from acting on their faith. um, We should accommodate them wherever possible. With respect to the Establishment Clause, let me suggest that I think the U.S. Supreme Court is correct, was correct in 1947 in terms of saying that we ought to interpret the Establishment Clause in light of the Founders' views. To my way of thinking, that means the national government and now state governments through the process of incorporation really have quite a lot of leeway to um, encourage religion, I I would say even, uh, even establish a church. However, I would, I, I would be the first to argue that these are bad ideas for prudential grounds, right? So something might be constitutionally permissible, but just a horrible idea. I think the founders who opposed establishments for religious reasons were exactly right. When the government runs something, uh, such as a church, that's oftentimes very, very detrimental to the church. As someone who wants to see the church thrive, therefore I want the government to be out of the business of running churches. 
Okay, both very enlightening comments here. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to close now with a final question to you both. Um, I'd like each of you to share any lessons or takeaways from this discussion about religion and the founding of the American Republic, um, in either in terms of important historical transformations you have charted or in terms of helping us simply better understand our present moment. Mark or Daniel? Sort of la- me, final uh, words of wisdom. Yes. Yeah, let me uh, let me offer an interesting phrase that I've encountered in my uh, in my research, and it's a phrase that I think, in a way, encapsulates a lot of what we've been talking about here. Um, and that is a, a phrase that was used by a number of, of founders. Um, I'm thinking in particular of John Adams and and John Dickinson. John Dickinson, sadly, is one of those forgotten founders, but was was well known in his own time, sometimes called the penman of the revolution, a very important founder. Both of them use the phrase that the Bible is the most Republican book ever written. Now, I got to tell you, uh, when I hear that phrase uh, jumping out of the pages of history, it always catches my attention. Uh, I, I, I've been reading the Bible for, for uh, more than 50 years now, and I got to tell you, I've never once thought of my Bible as I picked it up as a Republican book. So what, what, did Madison, what did Adams, what did Dickinson think? What were they thinking when they called the Bible the most Republican book ever written? Well, they're talking exactly about that syllogism that Jim Hudson writes about that Mark uh, explicated a little bit earlier in this conversation, this idea that you cannot have a system of Republican self-government unless the people themselves are virtuous. And what, what Adams was saying and Dickinson was saying is there's no tool more effective in nurturing the kind of civic virtue required of a self-governing people than the Bible. And the Bible, therefore, has, has become the book necessary for our experiment in Republican self-government to, to work. Uh, this was a generation that frequently said, look, there's only two ways in which a people can be governed. One is through internal controls, internal discipline. The other is by external control by the authoritarian rulers whip and rod. And what Adams is making an appeal to is how do we nurture those internal monitors, those internal controls, so that we don't have to rely on the external control of whip and rod. And he says, there's no book no book more effective in nurturing those kinds of virtues, that kind of morality that will facilitate self-government more so than the Bible. And I think that encapsulates uh, Hudson's point here on the founder's syllogism. Thanks, Daniel, for those words. Uh, Mark? Yeah, so... um... Daniel and I have, uh, have in part told a pretty weakish story of religious liberty in America, how it, it, it's maybe um, barely alive with the, the, the pilgrims, but it's a, it's a flame that, that catches fire and improves dramatically throughout American history. 
such that by the time we get to the mid 20th century, late 20th century, I think everyone agreed, Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, that religious liberty is something that's very important and ought to be protected whenever possible. Um, the liberal jurist, William Brennan, came up with a wonderful test for interpreting the free exercise clause. He said, if there is a, a general law of neutral applicability that keeps someone from acting on his religious conviction, the, the state has to show a compelling reason that it has to implement this law. And later it said it has to do so in the least intrusive means possible. This means religious liberty claims, which are almost always minority claims, Native Americans who feel they need to use peyote, Jehovah's Witnesses, who feel they can't salute the American flag, they will win a good percentage of the time. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court abandoned this, 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 um, this rule in 1990, but Congress came right back and passed unanimously in the House of Representatives, 97-3 in the Senate, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to restore this very, um, this very test. I think in the 20th century, Americans had come to understand the importance of religious liberty. And if we wanna be faithful to the founders' vision with respect to religious liberty, we really do have to insist that religious liberty is a fundamental American value that should be protected whenever possible. It's not always possible to protect it, but whenever possible, we ought to protect the ability of people to act upon their religious convictions. Okay, thank you very much. We have been talking with Daniel Dreisbach, professor in the Department of Justice, uh, Law and Criminology at American University in Washington, D.C., and Mark David Hall, the Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics at George Fox University in Oregon, co-editors of Faith in the Founders of the American Republic and the Sacred Rights of Conscience. We trust listeners uh, will have come away from today's podcast episode understanding a little more about what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion and see more value in the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle and its necessity for America's capacity to fulfill its role in the world. Thank you both for being with us. It's been very enlightening, and I hope you've enjoyed the time with us as well. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, listeners, remember to visit storyofamericanreligion.org to sign up for future podcast notifications under the Contact tab. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday starting October 19th, 2020 through the end of the year on Podbean under Story of American Religion, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. <laughs>